Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Agile Wire. A quick thank you to everyone who made it to Centair's product camp last week. The evidence-based management talk went over really well. We got lots of great feedback and people reaching out with questions. We also wanted to give a huge thank you to Beth, Colleen, and Brittany at Centair for putting together such a great event and for inviting us out to talk. In this episode, we got the chat with Don McGreal. Don is the VP of Learning Solutions at Improving, the course steward for the Professional Scrum Product Owner course, and the co-author of the Professional Scrum Product Owner book. As you can probably guess, we got into plenty of product owner topics that we think you'll enjoy. So here we go. Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. All right, and we are recording. All right, Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, so we got Don McGreal on the podcast uh, this week. So, Don, we should have been recording like 30 seconds ago. We were just telling the story. So I think that's a good spot to start. Um, we were talking about your book, uh, The Professional Product Owner. And the big con- one of the big concepts there is the three Vs of product ownership, vision, value, and validation. And um, this was back a couple of years ago. Um, you were interviewing somebody, right? And yeah. That's how the story went? Yeah. It, so Ralph and I, a co-author and I, we, um, we were writing the book. We, we kind of wanted to kind of focus on what the main goals of a product owner should be, what they should focus on the most. And we started thinking about you know, vision and value. And we're thinking about learning stuff like that. But then we figured, you know, get them all V's validation. And we thought that was cool. That's our hook. Right. And uh, so we wrote a chapter on each of those, but this is even just, it was before, before we wrote any of it, we just, it was more of a concept. Um, I would talk about it in classes and then friend and colleague of ours, Chad Bayer was in a class of mine years ago in Florida. And, uh, but anyway, what ended up happening is that years later, I, I taught a, I, I did an interview for somebody who was uh, looking for a coaching role with us. And I asked about a product owner and he's going on about, he says, what I like to focus on is the three V's. And he said it back to me and I started panicking. It's like, somebody else came up with this? Where did this even come from? <laughs> um, I'm like, where did you stop right there? Where did, where did that come from? And he goes, oh yeah, I came from uh, my friend, Jeff, Jeff Bubbles. And, uh, and then I sort of traced it back to Chad, who took my class <laughs> years earlier. So it was good to know it was catchy. That helped us to give us a little bit more confidence in writing the book. But we wanted to get it out there before other people started <laughs> using it. We wanted to be the source. Was that class the uh, the PSPO class that you're talking about, or was this something that actually predated even the PSPO course? It was a no. It was a PSPO course. Yeah, it was okay. one that we did in in Florida. It was a train the trainer one. Mm. Too. And Chad was in that because he was already a PST teaching the Scrum Master one, and uh, he was adding product owner to his license. How how long has that course been around for? Uh, I'd say twenty ten, pretty early on. I mean, it was there. I joined in. I I became a PST in uh, 2010, 2011, around then, and it was fairly new. Um, but it's changed a bit since then. Um, but yeah, it's been around a while. So I think right after the Scrum Master, the PSM class, which was an evolution from the original certified Scrum Master class that uh, Ken would teach, um, this kind of started up too. And then were you the steward ever since its inception? Or was that something you kind of took over at some point? No. It, so yeah, the way that worked is another kind of interesting uh, thing is I, I'm pretty passionate about the product owner role. I've, I've had the opportunity to play all the Scrum roles in my career. 
And, uh, you know, I went from business analyst and really trying to, you know, try to make more of my job as a business analyst. I, I really got into a product and understanding the customer and working with them. And, you know, it was exciting to me. Improving somebody's life is, is the way I looked at it, right? What we were building was improving one of our customers' lives. So I really loved that role. And then when I started teaching the product owner course at Scrum.org, um, there was a few aspects of it that I thought were missing as a as a former product owner and um and i remember it was in 2015 actually um a few of us were at the agile conference in, in dc i think or atlanta i think it was dc and uh, the sunday before the conference even started a bunch of psds were at a bar at the conference drinking. imagine and, that that's yeah, where all good ideas come from right <laughs> that's, uh, that's how it happens and uh, we started, we started, you know, talking about that class and what we could do to it and how to improve it. And at the time, well, the way the changes would make is we'd teach a class, write a big, long email and send it out. And then maybe some of those things would be updated like six months later in the class that would be announced to everybody. So um, a few of us just took it upon ourselves, like, let's just do it. Let's just ch- change it. And Ralph, uh, my co-author, was one of those guys. And, um, and the two of us, there was a bunch of other PSTs that had a lot of great input in that, but the two of us basically skipped the whole conference apart from our two sessions that we did. Uh, we talked, uh, uh, and, and, uh, we just sat in the, at a bar drinking and, and changing the course. We just went in and made a bunch of updates and, uh, they got wind of it and, uh, took a look at it at what we were doing and kind of liked it and, uh, decided to implement a lot of our changes. And that's right around Dave West joined as well, became CEO or product owner at scrum.org. And he, um, and, uh, he, he started the steward mall. He really was into that kind of open space or open source kind of idea of it. So we experimented with it. We put everything up on GitHub and, uh, Ralph and I became the, 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 the first stewards at scrum.org because of that. It really just started with a, a bar. <laughs> Washington DC conference, yeah. That that's really cool, and I, I'm kind of curious because so Jeff and I we're we're literally just this morning, you know, we we collaborate on on the next talk that we're building out. In fact, it's it's one on EBM, and the way we like to do it is like we'll we'll divide and then come back together and say here here's what I was thinking, here's what I and then we'll just like prune the things that we don't think align, and then it's just a really collaborative type situation. It sounds very much like, you know, how that, how that had originally started out with, with you and Ralph, how, how has that, has that same spirit uh, consisted with how you do continuous updates to the PSPO course, or is it obviously there's, there's a, a, a time and distance uh, differential now that I think Ralph is in Europe, isn't he? Or, or yeah. the Netherlands. Switzerland. Okay. Switzerland. So how, how do you go about, continuing with those updates now for the curriculum it honestly it gets harder you know i mean the, early on it, it's just like a product it's exciting in the beginning getting it out there but then eventually it turns into a um, you know a maintenance a maintenance job right you're you're just kind of keeping the wheels on and you want to be innovative and you can but there's a time and a place for that and you can't just keep innovating completely changing it just because you find it more exciting it's a good class it's a great class now so it just needs to be maintained a little bit um, so, but anyways, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all turned in. And the book was a perfect companion to that. Like the book was, we would co-teach once in a while together, Ralph and I would. And the problem we ran into is we all wanted to tell our stories and we just run out of time. So the book was a perfect outlet for that. We were able to just, just spew all everything from our heads into the book, all the stories that we don't have time to tell in class. 
was in the book. And that's why, if, if you notice the books, we have these little blurbs because we're trying to, we don't always agree with each other. Even in class, I would come up, we'd be a debate, we'd debate each other a little bit. And we wanted to bring that to the book, and it was hard. So we built these little characters, these little cartoon characters of ourselves. And we would just, whenever we wanted to tell a story, we would just, uh, that would pop up in the book. Um, but, anyways, we, yeah, it turned into a maintenance job. And, and we do have these term limits. And uh, so the other people are going to be coming in and taking over the, the product owner. And there's a bit of a worry that it changes completely, but they know that. Um, uh, we don't want it to kind of, every time there's a new, it's just like in the U.S., a new president, they want to switch the whole direction of the country. We don't want to do it that with the course either. But then there's also the PSPO2 course that we, um, we were involved with. So that's like a whole new exciting endeavor as well. I, I was, and Jeff, feel free to jump in here because it's just like, this is just spurring thoughts yeah. on my side. Um, I was actually uh, curious, like how, what has that involvement looked like from you? And I feel like even kind of sensing what you were just talking about was like, yeah, when it's a new product, everybody's got a lot of energy and a lot of collaboration going on to it versus when it's more in a stabilization or just maintenance period of a product. So how did you, I guess, balance out uh, your energy and enthusiasm for it and also kind of likely having a wealth of knowledge, having been the steward for the PSPO one course and having translate that to the more advanced course that they're working on now. Yeah. We really wanted to, to get that going and spear. We, we wanted to get it spearheaded. Um, and we didn't know how, what that would look like. Um, so in January, that was one of our missions for Ralph and me uh, to, to just get PSPOs two started. So what we did is we just asked uh, a bunch of people, um, to, for, to say, Hey, uh, can you help us every week? We want to meet, we want to start working towards this. We started with like a, a, just a discovery exercise. Um, I use, uh, I, we were on all online. It was a continual product that we did. We did silent collaboration where everybody writes something silently and everybody submitted it. We had about eight trainers invited to this. Actually, we invited more. Um, but you know, in order to be a steward, it'd be, it takes a bit of work, right? So mm -hmm. we asked for an hour and a half commitment every week. And then towards the end of that part, we started with all these ideas and kind of filtered it down and kind of created an outline. And the ones that were still standing, I guess, at the end of it ended up being the stewards for the PSPO2. And I'll be honest, like early on, I had a lot of energy on that, get it going. But then I saw people were taking leaders, you know, leaders started emerging. And and took control uh, of the we had it we kind of all had agreed on what topics were, but some of them really took the lead and ran with it, and that was great. And I found myself sort sort of slowly backing off. It was uh, I was deprioritizing it because it was in good hands. But I like I like where it's turned out. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a really going to be a really interesting course at PS uh, PO two. It's the product owner like is just that that role within Scrum. I think that is the most misunderstood role, and so I think having more advanced classes on that and to take that to the next level is is going to be great for the the whole community. Yeah, yeah, and we had the PSM two to be kind of uh, to compare it to, right? Um, and and so. I don't know when this is going to be released or even if we should be talking about the PSPO actually, because it's not an <laughs> officially released, but I think it's going to be soon. Um, yeah. It's going to be called the professional scrum product owner advanced um, rather than just two. Cause we're trying to separate from the assessments and uh, comparing it to the PSM two, you know, whereas the PSM one is, is mastering scrum. Um, the PSM two focus more on, on who they support and who they serve, right? The scrum master. So there's sections for, 
stakeholders like uh, executives, but then also the development team and the product owner. Well, in the same way, that's kind of where we started with PSPO2. It may have evolved a little bit different from this, but the way I like to explain it is PSPO1 is really about the role and the, and the things they do within the Scrum team. PSPO2 or the advanced one focuses on the different types of stakeholders, so outward, right, who they serve. So it's got that kind of um, same level of abstraction with the, with the PSM2. So kind of r- related to that, there's a, there's a conversation going on right now uh, internally, but I, w- I kind of want to throw this out because I specifically wanted to take the PSPO course with you, um, just obviously a lot of people speak very highly of you uh, with your experience and being the course steward. So, uh, but one of the, the, the biggest takeaways uh, that I had from your, from your course was thinking about the product backlog as the menu at your local restaurant. Like you, you, you can go and you can order the five cheese ziti or the, the fettuccine Alfredo, but you can't say, give me the five cheese ziti, but don't bother washing the dishes. Right. Like don't, don't do that. Just bring me the, bring me the good stuff. Right. And so that, that was really, for me, a great way of thinking about the product backlog. And it really makes it consumable to people who don't have that perspective on it. But the, the question that's, that's been coming up here is then that kind of begs the question then, does all work that's being done, should that be on a product backlog? If you're thinking about it as just the menu items uh, that a customer can say yes or no to, to receiving. It's interesting, before we actually went live here, we were using the term scrum grenade. <laughs> and this is this is kind of one of those scrum grenades where um, not everybody agrees on. Every, a lot of people I respect don't agree with this, but I, as a product owner, this is the only way I was able to cope, to be honest with you. Um, I find one big issue I had, and when I look at my clients as well, is the ownership of the backlog starts product backlog is, is taken away from the product owner. And one way is by pu- putting just a pile of stuff in there that they don't really care about. And you, they do, but not directly. And certainly the stakeholders don't even know what they are. Yeah, so I came up with that analogy um, where maybe the product owner is, is creating a tasting menu for the stakeholders, where the stakeholders have some sort of influence, mm-hmm. but they, they don't get to pick everything. They have to trust the product owner for that. And it's got to have value to the people that are consuming that. It's got to yeah. have value to the stakeholders. It's my litmus test. I ask for every item on the backlog, who, who wants this? Who gets direct value? And if the answer is the development team, then it doesn't go on. If the answer is the scrum master, it doesn't go on. If the answer is the product owner, it does not go on. We've got to make a case for somebody outside of the scrum team, somebody who's paying for this. Would they be willing? Would they be happy by paying for this? If they got it, they'd, they'd, be, they'd be happy. And, and, and I don't know. I doubt too many restaurant goers would be happy to pay just for somebody to go do dishes in the back and be done. Right. And I think that when you, if you start thinking about it that way, I actually see this in organizations all the time where the product backlog is filled with things that we might consider task level. And it's just those things like do the dishes, uh, you know, prep the food, do that kind of stuff, get all the things ready and validate. We actually have all the food and it's been, it's been ordered, right? Like that's the things. And as a product owner, you're like, I just want to serve the fendicini. Like that's what I want to do. And, um, and, and we're not as a stakeholder, it's like, things. I just want to order that. Yeah. And I'm not hiding yeah. it, but like, but if you have, tra- if I think that the, you will look back at what the product backlog is supposed to do, it's supposed to give you transparency into what you're actually going to do in the future. And if, is that really giving you transparency if you have access, but you don't really understand how well, it tells that story, right? It's transparency in the direction of the product though. Right. 
it's transparency on the product. It's the product backlog. Right, right. Um, it's not the team have, backlog. Yeah. It's the product backlog, right? Right. I'm not hiding that we're doing dishes in the back. Everybody should expect what we're doing dishes in the back. Just like I'm not hiding that we're automating. Um, they should expect that. They should expect a certain level of quality. I'm not going to put that on the backlog. And this is where the scrum grenade thing comes in. And this is where I've been in quite a few debates with other uh, uh, people that I respect, even coaches in my own company. Um, where does technical debt go? And I, as a product owner, did not like that on my backlog. I liked, um, I liked them talking about it and dealing with it, but that, that I, I had to, I had to expect that they knew the best way to deal with this. You know that they were going to do things right and they were going to get us out of debt as needed, and maybe I get less each sprint because of it, um, while they pay off that debt that we all we all have, right? Um, sometimes I was the cause for that debt, but I don't want it. I, I don't want it in the product backlog. How, how did you, I guess, I'm going to be careful how I phrase this, but, or maybe I'll just say it um, and give me some leniency with it. How, how did you ensure predictability with delivery? Like, or really just forecasting, right? Like if there's just this big unknown of technical debt that's going to be accounted for this sprint, next sprint, whatever it is into your release plan of, hey, in the next three months, this is where we're expecting to be without that visibility into the washing the dishes type tasks that that are going to be out there. Well, I mean, I would I would see it in the result of the sprint. If they're dealing with technical debt, I get less stuff off my backlog. That's my velocity, right? And, and so it, the effect that technical debt has on velocity is it's lowered. I just get you know there's less stuff getting to done, and and so I would just use that. But the reality is because you have a lot of debt, it's the unpredictability is down now, anyways. So it would be up and down a lot more because of the fact that we had debt. Um, one thing I was really, one, you know, I, you might be able to convince me that technical debt could go on the product backlog. One thing you can't convince me of is that you put any kind of, you know, points to it and you want credit for it. Like looking at velocity in that sense, I want velocity. I want to see the result, which is I get less, there's less features. There's less things that my stakeholders care about because of the fact that we're in debt. So that's interesting. You'd be an advocate then if I'm hearing you correctly, don't assign effort or story points to items that aren't delivering business value or customer yeah, value. And I, I, might, I might even be an advocate of not assigning points to anything, but that's a whole other scrum. I, well, yeah. <laughs> so here's, so here's the debate uh, that I'm actually going through with a client right now. So we need to start adding transparency onto where we're spending our time. And so we've been doing no estimates and we've, we've just started that way. We haven't, we just right size things and we haven't been putting story points on things. But this team now has different categories of work and they really, they're seeing the need to make it transparent to the stakeholders of how much time they're spending on new features, how much time they're spending on maintenance, how much time they're spending on technical debt, um, compliance, things like that, that there's a lot of things outside of their control and they want to make it very transparent that, hey, you're investing X number of dollars, but only this little bit is actually going to new feature development. So we want to level set expectations here. And when we say we spent a, a lot of time this this sprint on, on support because things got crazy, we want a way to say, yeah, it's normally you know 20% and it went up to 70% this sprint because something happened. And so the way that we're planning to do that, actually Monday we're going to be talking about this and we're going to um, start using story points for this one team. And then we're going to just use percentages of these different categories and show that as an on-product index type um, metric at the sprint review to talk about where we're spending our time and why we're spending our time in these areas. But we're not sharing velocity or story points with our stakeholders. It's just a way for us to rationalize ratios of where we're spending our time. Yeah. And we call that innovation rate. 
too. Oh yes, right. Yep, it, yep. And and so that's from EBM, evidence based management. Um, yeah, we refer to that as innovation rate. The percentage of our work of your of basically well, as a product owner, here's how I look at it. The percentage of my budget that's going towards new features my customers are asking for versus maintenance. But I can, I mean, maintenance stuff can still go in the product backlog, right? Fixing bugs and and, and stuff like that, it, it, or just little changes that the customers are asking for. They're not really innovative. So I classify those and they're right on my backlog and I can do that. Um, and I, I suppose you could measure time spent on, so the sprint backlog is where you capture technical debt. In, in why I look at it. And you can capture percentage that way, that way too, right? What percentage of the work we're doing in a sprint is focused on technical debt. And, and that's, you can still capture all the same numbers, even without putting estimates on it, right? Just how many tasks or how many sprint backlog items were focused on innovation versus non-innovation. Yep. And, and I, I find I've never even needed a, a put estimates on it for that, not for a burn down, not for anything like that. I, I used to, but I tried not doing it and didn't see it was any different. The less emphasis I put on accuracy, the more accurate my plans have been. I've noticed. Yeah, I was the the that phrase that constantly comes to my mind is minimal but sufficient. Like, yeah. do the minimal amount of work that suffices for you to to get the outcome that you're looking for. And so, like Jeff, like what you were just talking about was just great. We we did ten story points this sprint. Two of them were for this, five were for this, and three for were for that. Um, just great. That's your percentage of what's going on to, for each of those things. And I was thinking about uh, one of the clients that I was working with. We we defined like what what does it mean to be a new feature versus anything else. And that's really all we cared about was, and and our definition for a new feature was anything new from the perspective of our consumer, our, our our user, right? Like if this was the first time that they're able to do this this workflow or this functionality, awesome. But any enhancements to that after the fact, even if it was, hey, now they're doing it in half the time, that's that's an enhancement, but it's not new feature. Like they're improving the the satisfaction of it, but that is not a new feature from our definition of innovation, right? Because it's not something new for our customer. It's an improvement, but we don't count it as as towards our, our new innovative work that we're doing because to our customer, they could already do it weeks ago, months ago, whatever that time frame was. We're just uh, making it more usable. Yeah. And from a tactical standpoint, I've seen this as simple as, like, even though I, I say I don't want technical debt on a product backlog, I'm using a tool like Jira or, or TFS or whatever it's called now, DevOps Azure. I just make use of the tagging mechanism as much as mm-hmm. possible, right? So I never look at, if you want to put technical debt items in there, great, but I, don't, I won't look at it. I'll just filter them out and let the development team figure that out and order it and, and however they want. Now, here's the other thing I've noticed is it's very, very rare that a technical debt item needs to be its own piece right because let's say it's refactor this nasty piece of code is what the the development teams tell me it just takes them forever every time they have to do anything in that piece of code well we're never working in that piece of code again who cares Mm. it doesn't matter it runs fine Um, it's just hard to work in but we never have to maintain it so why would we change it but they're like if they do want to change it then they should be able to justify that there's some future feature that where they will need to spend some time in that so why don't we just put a little tag on that backlog item, and uh, when we get to that, then we'll do the te- then we'll clear the technical debt. And it might take less; it might take them more time, which means my velocity goes down because I'm not measuring points; I'm just measuring things, right? Um, and and that's where it'll come out. And I know it; they'll tell me that they'll say, "Hey, normally we could take on more stuff, but remember, when we do this, we're also going to clean it up." 
and that that's that's that works just fine for me or that item just becomes bigger to the team right if that's how they're doing it however they decide to size that right other other teams had like a big wall of debt that they would call like just a big area. And whenever they came during the sprint, something comes up and they just pop it up on the wall of debt. And then every sprint planning, they would take a little bit of time to take off that from that wall. Mm-hmm. But as long as that wall of debt is getting smaller, then at least we're paying off the minimal in, the minimum amount off our debt every sprint. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the other one that you talked about before is more of the Boy Scout rule, right? Where it's like, we're going to leave the code. We're going to leave the our environments in a better place than we found them every time we go to work there. But Again, there's no value if you're never working in that area to fix it and clean it up. So, right. yeah, 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 it, yeah, and that's just like regular debt. I always ask my 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 class this: is if you had a friend in credit card debt, what's the first thing I should do? And cut up the credit cards. Cut right? up the credit cards. So, what's the ask? And what's the equivalent of doing that in Scrum? Like, what would have prevented us from getting in debt in the first place? And that's the definition of done. So, it, you know. It, creating and adhering to a good definition of done is equivalent to cutting up a credit card. And then, then the second step is to pay off um, a little bit each sprint more than the, more than the interest that you're paying on at each sprint. Um, so that would be maybe taking a swim lane, um, at least one that off your, your sprint plan to, uh, to focus on debt. Yeah, that's great. Are so, you, um, Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. I was going to throw out a different scrum grenade. Oh, okay, go for it. You want me to? All right. So this is one. I got Don, what's your opinion on committing to the sprint goal? Think you should do it? Would you change it if you could? Yeah, that's a, it is odd, right? I believe that when this, when the sprint goal was, was announced or when it was first added to scrum, they removed the word commit from you know, the, the product back items, you don't commit to product back items. A lot of people took that to believe then you commit to the sprint goal, which I don't believe the scrum guide says, but could be wrong there. Yeah. I don't think it says that, but no. we talk about that or it's in we some do of our talk slides. About it. Yeah. yeah. We commit to the goal and, um, I'm okay with that, I guess I'm okay with it. it but I guess I think about, you know, real situations because you can achieve the goal without getting every single PBI done. So it gives you a little bit more wiggle room. Uh, commitment is a strong value in Scrum, one of the core values. So we have to commit to providing value, and value is by you know, delivering on the goal. And But it, it, we want to deliver value each sprint. I guess we, we commit to trying, but sometimes crazy things happen too, right? Right. And does that mean that the development team broke their commitment? That's what I get. That's what makes me funny about that word. Yeah. And I think that it's just the word, the way it's interpreted, they, a lot of people would say, yeah, if you don't meet the sprinkle, you didn't meet your commitment because we commit to the sprinkle. And I would say, well, commitment isn't like that. Commitment's like I can, I'm playing, I play pickup basketball, right? So play pickup basketball. I'm committing to winning. I'm not going to throw the game, but it doesn't mean I win every single time I go out there. And so, yeah, we did our best to hit that sprint goal, but complexity happened. And so we didn't. But we we made this progress towards delivering value. We're going to do better next time because we have more knowledge now, and we'll come up with a better plan and a and a, a way to move forward. But I, I think that that's that's the way I like. If so, if you interpret it that way, then I think it's fine. But like when you the way most people think, commitment means like you will do it. Like it's a guarantee. Um, it's not a guarantee, right? Like that's a good that's a good analogy, right? Yeah, you can commit to winning, but which I, I think is equivalent to the goal. Right, yeah, sprinkle. Yep, 
but what we used to say is you commit to scoring a certain number of baskets, right? Or mm-hmm. you commit to uh, getting a certain number of yards in football. Right. That's different, right? We could still win even though you don't achieve that. And, and now you're committing to things like whether you get the certain PBIs done or not isn't really the goal. Value is the goal. So re- related question, because I've run into this a few times with teams. Um, can the sprint goal remain the same from sprint to sprint? Like maybe your your sprint goal is really something like it's it's really going to take the next two to three sprints to get this thing out the door. But this is really what, what we're working on. Um, maybe there's no way of slicing it or whatever the case may be. But what what would your what would your feedback be to something like that? I so I I've done you know when I've I've been a product owner we do things like a goal would be to get a start on something, right? So that, mm-hmm. I always look at the sprint goal as when I pass a stakeholder in the hallway and they go, "Hey, I'll be there next week at the sprint review. What am I going to see? I'm not going to rattle off the you know dozen PBIs that we're working on. Um, if I don't have a nice clean kind of answer to that, it means we don't really have a focus sprint. We don't really have a goal. So what I might say is something like, "Hey, yeah, you'll see the uh, you'll, you'll see the beginnings of our administrative side of the website, which we have we had none. You know, we're going to get a start on that." You know, that's, so we've got, they're going to see something they've come expecting that mm-hmm. they're going to see these things. We've achieved it. And and they also know it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be complete and you know, everything's done. But then later we might have a sprinkle that says, tie it up in a bow, right? Where we feel that, that the administrative side is going to be done. So you could say part one and part two, payments, part one, payments, part two. I'd prefer it to be a little bit more real like start it or finish it or maybe sure. we'll do the visa mastercard part of the payments and then we'll finish it with paypal bitcoin i don't know uh, just something different like that so i've done that, those sorts of things uh before i just want to be able to easily communicate it and and i always want to ask how does what we're doing get us closer to the vision that i have um and and if if that answers it then i'm cool with that sprinkle but there's always one and um, it should be understandable to our stakeholders. I, I really like that. One of the, the situation that I always think of whenever somebody is bringing up the sprinkle is it was, was at a client and um, was overhearing somebody leaving uh, a sprint review. I, th- I think that's what it was. Um, but it was kind of like a hallway conversation. It was, I, th- I believe, a marketing person or something like that. And she goes, you know, I just I, I never remember what these sprints are all about. Um, they all just sound the same to me. It's just a laundry list of stuff. And part of the reason was after talking with this person about it was the, the, the sprint goal was just do all the work, right? Just Or it was just each PBI was listed out as the sprint goal. But there was just never that easily consumable um, blurb about what, what was what were we trying to accomplish with all of this stuff um, easily consumable by somebody not so close to it as like the scrum team or the development team or something like that. And so that's, that's partly what I try and articulate the people is to, to what you were just saying, Don, is it's like, how, how would you communicate this outward? Like, would you really just rant off the 13 items that the team is going to be working on? Or would you give them just like a five second, oh, here's what we're trying to accomplish, or here's what you're going right. to see. And, and something else I've, I've heard of, and I wish I did this back when I was doing these, like we used to have all these cute names. Like I always thought, hey, we should always come up with a sprint name. We should name our sprint something. 
we'd come up with cute names for our sprints. Like as one, it was the planets, you know, the first sprint was Mercury. Then the next one was Venus uh -huh. and then earth and Mars in order, something that was orderable. We also did beers. So you'd start with an A beer, like a Amstel light. And then, a, then it was a bud and then C Coors. So that would be the names of the sprint. So we thought we were kind of clever with that. But then somebody told me when talking about the sprint goal, I was like, that's crazy. Why don't you name them based off of what it is you're doing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> you should be able to name the sprints. Like, you should have a name. But rather than sprint one, two, three, this is the admin sprint. This is the get that admin stuff done, finished, you know, sprint. Get, uh, you know, improve performance sprint. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to have, it, it should be easy enough to be the name. And then as we're walking around and talking about it, that's how we're referring to it, to our stakeholders. That's how we kick it off in the sprint review. Welcome to the, to the, you know, um, search for product sprint. Uh, you know, that's, that's how, that's how we should be doing it. That should be the name. Yeah. I like that. As long as it doesn't turn into, this is the design sprint and this is the <laughs> testing sprint or something like that, then exactly. I think we're good, right? That's right. Yeah. No, that's good. I mean, we'll make it real obvious if we're doing something like that so somebody can call us out. Having taught the the product owner course for a number of years now, what what do you feel like the biggest lift is right now for raising product owners up to that next level in, in the industry? Well, the thing I get so much traction on, I find myself writing this even not in a classroom environment, just working with, with customers, talking to product owners is that whole, you know, we, we talk about this trip from scribe to entrepreneur. Yep. Way too many product owners see their job as a scribe. So we, you know, I've had product owners say that they feel like they're the secretary for the team and their job is to write stuff down. And um, I've been in a meeting where a the customer's there and one of the programmers was listening to the customer and then pointed to the product owner and put in quotes here. Um, pointed to the product owner and said, ooh, this is good. You should write this down. And then product owners complaining that their teams keep asking for more details. They're not getting enough details from them, uh, which tells me that they're not a product owner. They're not focused on the three Vs, vision, value, validation. They're not entrepreneurial. So what we talk about in the class, in the book, um, all over is that just that trip from Scribe. Then well, one step, and it's not like you could just snap your fingers overnight and you have an entrepreneurial mindset. So we kind of have this path for them. Um, the next step up from Scribe is a proxy. Still not ideal, but if you're trying to get out of that role, it gives you something. If you can just focus on making connections with the business and being a go-to person, then you turn into a proxy. Um, it's better than the Scribe because now you're working with the business a bit more. But the problem with the proxy is that every time you ask a proxy a question, guess what the answer is? I need to go talk to Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go talk to somebody who really knows. And both the scribe and the proxy we describe as they're on the receiving end, right? They're not actually initiating anything. They just take in, take orders in and, and, and make it happen. Um, so then we talk about one step up from proxy. So we describe proxy, one step up from proxy, we call a business representative. The business rep sometimes comes from the business. Maybe they're an actual user, a customer subject matter expert, but they know the business. So they could come up with ideas. They may not be empowered the same way, but they may have some good ideas and, and, and they understand the product. But the problem with the business rep is that they may get too far into the weeds, into the details, um, not thinking as much on it. They get, they're the ones that can turn into more on the detail side. 
And they probably don't have financial accountability or responsibility, maybe not even any kind of insight into that, right? That's like, right. Yeah. And that's where we talk about the sponsor, right? Because the one step up from the business rep is the sponsor. The sponsor is the person that hopefully was even involved in the original business case. At some point, somebody said, hey, if we invest in building this thing, this initiative, this features, product, whatever, um, if we invest in this, we will get a return on that investment and we expect it to look like blah. But that gets lost, right? That gets lost. That's what the three Vs are about is, is dealing with that vacuum that exists between the original idea of something and then the guys that are building it on the ground. Um, or do they even understand why they're doing it? So we're trying to fill that the right way. And the product owner is essential to that. They're key to that aspect of it. And it seems like such, uh, at least in larger organizations, like a self-inflicted wound. Like we've got our executive leadership that comes up with all these great strategic ideas. They come up with the business case. And then somewhere it enters in a black hole and gets spit out down to a product owner or a team to, to start executing on. And best case scenario, they actually have that business case. They actually understand some of the objectives. Uh, but oftentimes it's just execute. It's just here here's the, the requirements document, go build the thing. And then, um, and then you've got... And then we wonder why our people don't aren't accountable. I get that question all the time when I ask... Or what, engaged, what right? Learn? Yeah. And why, how do I get my team more engaged, more accountable? It's good. They don't... Everybody wants to do something that, that's, that's meaningful, that has purpose. So as product owners, we're core to that. The number one thing a product owner can do to motivate a team is, is share the vision. Talk to them about whose lives are improving by the work they're doing and then set them up to meet at least once a sprint, right? Uh, that get them in front of them at face to face. I was a business analyst. We actually got to sit like there's a call center for a big insurance company for claims for people entering claims. They were getting calls from people who were in accidents and making property claims and car auto claims. And we got to sit and listen to the phone calls of people that had just been in accidents. And we got to see the, the CSRs, the customer service representatives struggling with this tool um, that would crash on them all the time. A lot of them would just rent it, write anything in Notepad and then after the call would enter everything into the tool because they didn't trust the tool. That gave us empathy with them. And so we wanted to improve their lives. And it was so cool a year later walking around that call center, seeing them using the new tool and the pride that we felt. And most of them didn't even know we did it, but it didn't matter, right? We That's what motivated us more than every, anything. Yeah, and I think, you know, product on having that vision and connecting that to the scrum team that's awesome and then pulling them in to help with that product strategy right like how do you connect this to what we're actually going to build what are the outcomes we're actually going to do and have them coming up with those ideas um like it's just like the example you gave because they probably came up with new workflows or new ways that they could use it because they're technologists they understand how technology works they see the problem and there's like i have a solution or here's some solutions and they brainstorm on it and now there's a lot of ownership there because like they feel the how they're going to impact somebody's lives so i that I've, i see that all the time too it's it's a great it's a great thing when it happens yeah it was a programmer that came up with a key thing like one of the other reasons they were using notepad is that the, the original tool had them in a wizard they had to fill in this information then this then this then this and so you, you were talking to a panic customer on the other phone on, on the other line and they're giving you all this information but the newer csrs were like no i'm not ready for that information yet give me this information first mm-hmm. whereas the senior ones have been around for a while knew what to ask and they just let the person talk and they would just put it in a notepad that's the other reason they use notepad and then they could put it in the right so it was a it was a programmer that that came up with the idea to move away from that whole um work or, or that wizard kind of flow 
and make it more, you know, tabular. They can move to any, any, any section they wanted to. They're the ones that noticed that and proposed that idea and the customer loved it. Yeah. So that's, that's key. I mean, so the other, and, and finishing off that thought, that trip to entrepreneur, we don't expect to have the actual business sponsor. It'd be great if we did be the product owner. But I talk about this in a mindset way. Once you get to entrepreneur, which is after sponsor, like the sponsor is building, is using somebody else's money. An entrepreneur is their money. So would you be okay as an entrepreneur spending your money every sprint? Let's say it's 50000 a sprint, which isn't far off from a typical sprint cost. Mm-hmm. You go, you go a year and let's say twenty something sprints, spending that much money—that's millions of dollars. How much did you get for that? If you got to, I like to ask this to my product owners: If you could take your life savings and invest it in the product that you're a product owner for, would you do it thinking you'd get a return? And most of the time, I ask that question. I'm like, heck no. I'm like, well, what are we doing? Why would you? Why would you be in this situation? You should believe in it. You should, you should be a good steward of the company's money here. And that's what I want out of an entrepreneurial mindset. And this is what I want for my product owners. So this, this, I, I love this conversation. It made me think of one, one other thing. And I want to get your perspective before I chime in with my two cents. Does the product owner lead the scrum team? Yeah. Yep. Of course they do. But so does the scrum master and so does. So does the team itself, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It depends. So I, there's, I do a leadership training thing. Um, and I do talk about exactly that. And I, I show each of the roles and I, t- I talk about what they lead. Um, the product owner leads the direction of the product. They decide when to release. Um, as a good leader, they listen to their people as well. Um, but they lead the direction. Then they provide the vision. Whereas the scrum master is leading the process, making sure a good process is being developed and owned by the scrum team. Um, and, and so they're a leader in that section. And, and the development team's leading when it comes to quality and, and delivering value each sprint. Um, they, it's their say, and they're ultimately responsible for that as a professional team. So if, if I was a manager and I said, uh, you know what, motivation's really low on the scrum team. We need to get a good leader in there. And so we need to think about, be strategic with the product owner that we put into this position. Um, would you, is that something you'd be in alignment with? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if the manager part is a bit of a, uh, <laughs> a red flag or not, but I don't care who's making the decision. Um, but it, I would want to put somebody who has leadership ability in the product owner uh, role for sure. They have to be, I would look for that in a scrum master too. And with certain people on the team, I don't need a whole development team full of natural leaders, but if the development team does not have a leader type personality on there, like that emerges, I don't need them to be assigned to be a leader. They will not be successful either. Right. So, um, we're going to have Bob Galen on, um, in two weeks and, um, he's got this like four quadrant that he talks about for a product owner where he's like, product owner is kind of made up of four more traditional type roles. Like you got a little bit of a BA, you got a little bit of a project manager, you got a little bit of a program manager, and you've got some of like a a leader or some type of like management type of structure like in there. So there's like four different components of a product owner. And um, what I see often, it kind of is very similar to the model that we talk about in the PSPO and that you just walk through with the scribe all the way up to the entrepreneur is that most product owners are very heavy in the BA you know, project manager type area. 
They're not so heavy over into the leader and the program manager or just like the entrepreneur mindset type stuff. And um, I just wanted to get your opinion. Like, what do you think of of that kind of breakdown of the product owner role? Yeah, I mean, you know, what sticks out to me with that one is it's not as clear on the innovation aspect of it. You know, and then and the, the, the advanced product, the PSPO, or PSPO advanced, I still don't know how to say it, class that's coming out. We do, we do have, much like the PSM2, um, a bunch of stances, I guess, is what they refer to it for the product owner. And two that I would like to emphasize more that I don't hear in the BA program manager, product manager thing as much is, is an innovator and a scientist, I think, is one. Like somebody who experiments and validates the hypothesis. Um, that's what I feel is, is missing a lot from the product owner role. We need more of somebody who can, you know, set, create an environment of safety to experiment um, on the product, just like the team experiments on the process and tries different things. I want us doing that, validating our ideas more. Right, having a hypothesis on outcomes and then trying experiments to to get to those outcomes. Right, and I'm going to lessen that BA thing as much as possible. Even though you're right, it's probably the most one. But you know, in order for them to focus on that outwardly with their stakeholders and the market and all that, they're not going to have as much time for writing detailed requirements, and nor should they. No, but they need to be able to understand from a business standpoint what's actually happening. Right, at least even from a high level. So maybe that's a skill set that it would have normally had in one of those roles. Yeah, high level, but they should be, you know, they can't know it all. If they get a question, they they should be able to just point, hey, go talk to that person. Whatever he says is good with me. That's that's what I want more and more out of my product owner. And and that helps it scale, that that just keeps it, yeah. Yeah, I like to use the analogy that the product owner is kind of like a CEO or like the president of the United States. The president of the United States does not know everything that's going on in every department of the government, right? Like, but... They have certain people that are responsible, and ultimately, they probably are accountable to what happens, um, just like a product owner is ultimately accountable to the value produced by your product. Um, doesn't mean they have to do it all. They just have to make sure that there's checks and balances in place to distribute the right responsibility to the right places and put the right people in the right situations, right? So, and that's that's where I wanted to push back, though. Like, you even said it inside there. They lead the product. And that's that's where I, I, I push back and say, like, I, I don't agree that they lead the team. Mm. So they should be leading the product and the product of the direction, but they shouldn't be necessarily leading the team. Like I, the way you explained it down, like I, I, I'm in alignment and I, and I think there's an interesting point in there. Like there needs to be a leader, like somebody should be stepping up and we should be cultivating those skills with, with a, a scrum team, whether that's the, the product owner, the scrum master or somebody within the development team, but somebody needs to have those leadership skills. Um, the point that I, that I push back and why I propose the question is all too often I, I hear and people articulate themselves um, as the product owner is the leader of a team. And I think when people say leadership, they, they, it means something Management. different, especially in larger, yeah. yeah, in larger organizations, what they really mean is the manager of the team. Yeah. And I think we're aligned there. I mean, if it was, do they manage the team? The answer is absolutely not. Yeah. And you're right. Sometimes people get the wrong impression there. But like, if I were to say that the only leader in a scrum team is the product owner, then that's a big problem. If I said that right. the only leaders were the product owner scrum master, that's still a big problem. Mm-hmm. The development team, just the core development team, if there's no leader on that team, they will not be successful. No matter yeah. how much of a leader the product owner or the scrum master is. I feel that we need that. We need a leadership on 
on each of these. We need people to emerge as leaders. Um, yeah, I think that that's so critical. With I, and I and I know these exemplar high performing teams that I have in my mind, and every one of them had an organic leader that just came about. Somebody who had the respect of the other people on the team, not the organizational authority over the other members on a team. They were people who proved themselves to the other team members and and just cultivated that leadership skills in there. Those were the teams that were I always saw that were at that high performing yep. state. Same here. It wasn't necessarily because they had a great product owner or even a great scrum master. It was just something internal to the development team. And I feel like a lot of organizations don't think about that perspective where they're just like, hey, let's just throw a really great scrum master in there because the scrum master will fix the problem or even a great product owner. I'm sure that they will be helpful, but without without that leadership internally to the team, I don't think you're ever going to get to that that utopia um, area of a, a truly self-organizing, autonomous, uh, cross-functional team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And when we're saying leadership, are you guys thinking servant leaders? Like we need servant leaders at, at the product owner, scrum master, and development team level? Or are you thinking of another leadership style? I've kind of gone back and forth on that. Um, certainly in the scrum master role, it's, it's, it's associated to that. And I would also say within the team. But, you know, I, I want some assertiveness in the team too, right? You need some of those high D personalities, like the people that are that are, uh, what's D for, uh, um, driving, in the, right? in the disc, yeah. yeah in the yeah. disc profile, the high D's. So they, they, uh, you know, the people that drive, that just want to get something done, you know, even push. I want to see some of that. I want to see some tension within the development team sometimes and, and, uh, just getting stuff done. I think it makes for a healthy team. Uh, the product owner could go either way, but in, I guess in the concept of co- complexity, when we just don't know what we're building, I think just generally it's better to err on the side of servant leadership. Um, because nobody knows, right? There is no one person that understands the outcome. So in those situations, you've got to push decisions down to the people doing the work. And I think a lot of that does go, it applies to the product owner role too. Any leadership, even managers outside of the teams, right? Um, when we don't know the outcome, uh, let the people on the ground decide. Yeah. I, and I think that servant leaders get a bad rap, you know, like, if you go back to like the 12 principles of servant leadership from like Robert Greenleaf um, article in, in that area, you know, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, growth, building a community. Those are all things I want my product owner to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all good traits for them to be able to, to have. So, and they're the same thing that's in servant leadership. So I, servant leader doesn't mean you get walked over. I think that's a common mis- yeah. right. It's a common misconception that's out there, right? Yeah, ser- servant leadership is still leadership, right? You you still need to lead. Uh, one of the other ones you were, you were kind of reading them off, and I've heard it numerous times now from from Don, um, probably partly because it's your company's slogan. But like, I, th- I also just feel like it's the spirit of what you do is improving lives. And so the one that I always like to to call out from those those attributes is a calling. Like this is just something you feel like you're called to do is to be a, a servant leader for for your team or whoever you're there serving. Um, I always like to think about that. Like, what? Why do you do the things that you do? Well, Don, I've heard it again and again. You do it because you want to improve people's lives, um, which is great. Because maybe I even stole it from you at some point. But that's the same way I think about the things that I do. Is like that's my purpose: is to improve somebody's life. Maybe it's through agile coaching. Maybe it's through um, volunteering efforts. But whatever that that it's that's that's why I do the things that I do in my life. Yeah. And, and one of the agile principles, right? The, the the one that applies most here is that one where it's like, 
give the people the resources and the tools they need, then trust them to get the job done. Right. That's a product owner too. And that speaks, that's, that's servant leadership. The servant model, service model in Scrum, right? Um, so the, the Scrum master serves the development team, I guess maybe a product owner. Who does the development team serve? So I would throw out there the product owner. Product owner, right? And yep. then yeah. and then the product, product owner serves customer. Yep, uh, exactly. So that's the service model. So then we say in a development team, um, who can or or I guess on a scrum, who who's who uh, who can fire the uh, scrum master? Well, that's are we talking per the rules of Scrum or, yeah, or yeah, the rules of the organization? Yeah, well, right. Let's let's go with Scrum ideal world. So, so firing is a different thing than removing. So, I'd say that removing, the development yeah, team not, can't can't fire them, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, let's not get too. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But removing. could a development team remove a scrum master if they serve them? They should. Sure. Why yeah. not? Yeah. yeah. They should be able to hire and and remove. Let's use that word instead of fire. Um, cut that one out. And then the development. <laughs> so, they, they, so in that case, then if 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 there's somebody on the development team that's underperforming, is the product owner since they serve the product owner able? to remove that person. I'm going to let Jeff answer this because <laughs> you and I actually talked about this one. Yeah. You, you convinced me. So that's the grenade. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get the argument. Um, I would say if you do that, what happens to self or if, if the product owner removes a development team member, what happens to self organization within the team? And, Especially when you have, um, especially when things are happening in an organization, if you've gone from a more traditional mindset to going to using some form of agility and you're using Scrum now, they might just see that as, oh, this is just a manager telling us what to do and how to work again. And then what happens to engagement and accountability? And so I think that could they? I guess, but like I would really, really try to push it on the development team to try to solve it first. Um, and if you have a development team that isn't at that maturity model yet, or they're and there's chaos there and they can't handle that, then maybe they do need um, some assistance from outside the organization, whether that's a product owner or some form of leadership in the organization. Then, then that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Can, what are your well, thoughts? I, the, I didn't give you a real strong answer there, one way or another. But yeah, like, it's a it's a tough <laughs> one, right? It's a weird one. But it, uh, can the product owner remove the whole team, development team? Hmm. Yes. Sure. Undeniably, yes. So I'm going to draw this back to your entrepreneurial mindset. If I'm not getting the value from a team, it's my money, and you're going to tell me I can't? Yeah, Hell no. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where the difference is, right? And I've been thinking about that because it was brought up to me from a, with another PST a while ago. There's a grenade, and we kind of argued back and forth. And they were insisting that, yes, of course they can because of the service model. They can, they can get rid of somebody in the team. And I went home, and it's when I, I thought about it afterwards – where I was like, oh, I got it, but it was too late. The conversation was over. I wanted to call them up and go, hey. But what 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 it occurred to me is when I had somebody build the deck on the side of my house, there was a group of people that came in, a team that came in to do it, and we had hired them. And uh, you know, there's a contractor and we're signing all the stuff. And what was funny is he was he's like a good old boy Texan, and he goes, See this paper right here? He's explaining the pages that we're signing them. He goes, This, this means we don't work for you. I'm like, uh, okay, I didn't think you did, but he goes, well, let me explain. He says, there are some people that will insist that we're here at nine every morning, five, like like they're, they're, they're our boss. You hold us accountable to delivering this thing. Let us figure out how to do that. 
if they don't, if we don't get that done, then you have a right to say something. But so I started thinking of that. Now, if I spotted one of their guys taking a nap outside or playing on their phone and everybody else is working hard as their customer, what's my response? Even though they're serving. I don't want to pay for that. Right. As a customer. Well, I mean, but I'm not paying them hourly. I'm not paying. I'm paying for the outcome. I'm paying for the value at the end. Yep. So I might question it. I might go, huh. But if there's trust in there and they seem to be making progress, they're probably not going to do anything. But I would say, I wonder why they're not holding each other accountable. Right. And if I had to work with them a lot, I might bring that up. But I would expect them to hold each other accountable. They should be because they're now working. Other people have to work extra hard to support this person. Um, so I, I, that that to me works perfectly in this because but you I don't know get, they they might be they might be taking a 15 minute break because yeah. they have to do something really hard and, and strenuous and maybe on another job site that guy was doing on worked all night and now he's taking and he's actually showing up just to be supportive but he's not on like, i don't know and and i shouldn't have to right um i've got to trust them to be able to figure this out and i don't i don't go and manage their day-to-day activities and who's working on what and whether they use automated tools or hand tools uh, I'd, I'd like to see quality at the end as long as it's quality and it's what i want and it's valuable then hey i'm fine with it and and that kind of that analogy i think works well uh with this to solve this yeah so are we saying uh product owners shouldn't remove a team member but uh they could remove the whole team if they're not getting the results that they're looking for yeah that's the conclusion i've i've uh, come to no. Yeah, I think I like that. I'm sure there'll be debate on that, or people could debate that, but I, I like that. Awesome. Want to wrap this up? Yeah, I think this has been a great episode. Thanks for coming on, uh, Don. At this time, is there anything like you want to plug? Any talks you're doing? Any articles you're writing? Anything like that? How can people connect with you? Yeah, um, so improving.com is uh, my website. You know, we're. Uh, consulting company. Um, I always like to say, you know, our goal isn't to do scrum. We build software for people. Um, but scrum is the best tool we've found over the years. And, uh, that's the way I, I tell my clients all the time. So we're not doing it for the sake of doing it. And you know, scrum is on the cover of CIO magazine or anything like that. It's, it's, it's how we achieve agility. It's how we deliver value. Um, and it's the best thing we found so far. That's what we do. We build software for people. And then I run, and sometimes they ask us how we do it. And that's where training and coaching comes in. And uh, so I run the training organization inside of improving. So we do consistent classes in our offices in Dallas. Uh, every month we're doing a product owner and a scrum master class, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. We're in Minneapolis, Atlanta now, and then Calgary, Alberta. We are international. Um, so yeah, we have about 500 people doing working on, 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 on that, on that. And then, um, you know, Tasty Cupcakes is always out there. That's my my games website. Um, you know, it's fairly, it's, it's been a bit neglected over the years, but it still has a lot of traction, a lot of people adding stuff to it all the time. Yeah, if you're uh, a scrum master out there and you haven't looked at Tasty Cupcakes, do it. Like, there's tons of great ideas out there. Uh, yeah, things to I, do can't, with your team. I can't even keep up with all the ones out there. I haven't even read them all, um, but the, the community is adding stuff to it all the time. And, uh, yeah, in my book, The Professional Scrum Product Owner, we used to boast, like, honestly, there are not too many books that have the word product owner in the title. Like product, They get close, <laughs> but that's, like, one of the only ones. Um, and it really maps closely to the Professional Scrum Product Owner course that Ralph and I designed, so we also built the book for it. So it's a good companion to find out what happens in that class. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. 
we are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.